The teaching text for today comes from John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. Hey, before uh, I hop into the scripture, we've got some guests here this morning. Uh, the Cherry family is here. Travis Cherry's a, a pastor and starting the Connecting Co., which is the new church. So members of the launch team and fam Cherry family, please wave for everybody. So uh, starting a new church in Glenpool? Jinx. Okay. So we are just a little bit ahead of you. Like we're nine months in, so we know what you're going through right now in the launching season. And we just pray that God would bless you and bless your family, bless your church as you guys get started. We're on the same team, so just really glad that you're here. Pray God's blessings on you guys. So, um, Well, we're in John 15. You're welcome to uh, keep your Bible open if you like. Um, our, the sermon series, Learning to Be Well, started somewhere a bit unconventional and unorthodox, and it's ending somewhere a bit unconventional and unexpected. Uh, you know, we started, you think of a typical sermon series, Learning to Be Well, and in churches you'd be like, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to fast, do uh, conventional spiritual practices. But instead of starting there, we started with being present versus escaping. Ben hinted at being present in the moment versus using things to numb or detach or to distract us from uh, the pains and the joys of life, starting about uh, presence versus escapism. We talked about rest versus frenzy. We're, we're wired to go hard all the time. We talked about having a posture of surrender versus a tight-fisted posture of control. Uh, we started with Jesus in the garden, uh, aware of what was about to happen when he was to be arrested. His friends are asleep, and he's deeply grieved at what's coming. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's present to himself, and he brings that self-presence into the presence of his Father. And we end this series with Jesus again, talking with his friends before his crucifixion, looking into the face of these men that he had come to deeply love, knowing that he was soon to depart, first through death and then through his resurrection and his ascension. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know John 15, 5 is a, a scripture that we reference a lot. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a foundational scripture for us. This is John 15, 5. In fact, let's read it together. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is foundational for us. 
Uh, if we start a church and we're not connected to Jesus personally, we are wasting our time. Jesus says the, uh, the central thing about a flourishing life, about a blossoming life, is one that's deeply connected with Him. Jesus is the oxygen for the Christian journey. It would be a depressing and sad thing to have spent a lifetime being religious and going to church and yet not having had a, a personal relationship with Jesus, knowing Him and being deeply known by Him. It's what Paul said uh, to a young pastor named Timothy. People like this who have the outward appearance of religion, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. So you look kind of right, but you're missing what's going on, what should be going on at the very core. And so in John 15, Jesus starts this passage using the vineyard imagery. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He talks about pruning, talks about remaining. It's all really good. And then in the text that Gabe just read, which you've got a fantastic public speaking voice, by the way. You need to do like movie voiceovers in a world where... Um, it was really good, Gabe. But the thing's kind of take an unexpected term thematically, where he goes from talking about the vine and the branches, which you could call a kind of like a personal relationship with Jesus kind of thing, and he goes a bit of a different direction. He said to the followers, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We can gloss over that. As the Father loves me, so I love you. Jesus is eternally the second person of the Trinity, existing God, that God had His Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal community of love. God is completely satisfied within God's own community of love. As the Father has loved the Son, Jesus said, with that same kind of love, I love you, which is profound. And I want you to remain in this love Camp out in this love. Be nourished by this love. Let this love that my Father has for me and that I share with you uh, infiltrate every part of your being. Remain in my love. Uh, there's a study by the Duke University Medical Center. Brian, I, I pulled a Duke study just for you. Uh, Duke University Medical Center did a 30-year study uh, studying the relationship between uh, uh, parental affection and health of children as adults. And so they did this study beginning when kids were six, eight months old, and they categorized the levels of affection that their mothers showed them. And so the first 10% of these mothers showed a, a low level of affection. 85% showed a, a normal range of affection, and then there was 5% of mothers who showed a really high or an extravagant level of affection toward their children. Well, what kind of, affection, what kind of impact would that affection have on those toddlers, those babies, 30 years out? Well, you go 30 years out and you find the adults whose mothers showed high or extravagant affection were much less likely than the others to feel distressed and anxious. They're also less likely to report hostility, distressing social interactions, and psychosomatic symptoms. This is true of parental love, but doesn't it also have bearing on divine love, on the relationship that our Heavenly Father has toward us? If we are confident in the love that our Heavenly Father has for us and we let that love permeate our being, it will not be without effect. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me with that same measure of love, I love you. Remain in that love. Camp out in that love. And he says, I want you to, to obey my commands. Uh, okay, we brought commands into this. We're talking love. What's that all about? He said, but my command is this. 
to remain in my love, obey my commands. My command is this, love each other. In the same way that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the disciples, the community of followers, I want you to share that kind of love with one another. Keep my commands, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus said, there's no greater love than one who lays down his life for his friends, which was what Jesus was about to do. And then he says, you're truly my friend. It almost sounds like an elementary school kind of exchange. Well, you're really my friend if, uh, but Jesus said it, so it's not petty. He said, you're really my friend if you love in this way. And it makes sense. Every friend group has its own behaviors, its own quirks. Uh, I have a group of friends, and we, we love to talk about the show Arrested Development, series, seasons one through three. You can ignore everything that came after that, okay? It's not canon. But, uh, and, and with my older brothers, we just, we just interweave Arrested Development references into our everyday conversation. And like, unless you know the show, you don't know that's going on, but that's one of the quirks of the friend group or my relationship with my brothers. Or maybe you identify with a group of people because you always watch uh, sports together, like you're big into OU football together or OSU sports. And every group of friend has, friends has its own little quirks, the thing they're known by. Well, they're the, they're the outdoorsy people or they're the, like the, the motorcycle people or whatever. Um, uh, every group has its own quirks. Jesus was explaining what his friend group was like. What was going to be the reputation of the people who followed him? He said, the community of friends of Jesus are to be known for the way that we love each other. The way that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the disciples, so the disciples are to love one another. And that's supposed to be the hallmark of Christian community. He starts this teaching with a, connection, with a conversation about connection to him, and he ends it with a conversation about friendship among those who follow him. And this is where I struggle with some approaches to church. And I love, you know, we're on the same team as every church in town. We're on the same team. But I struggle with some models of church that prioritize anonymity or or consuming from a distance or online primarily. Or those Christians who love God but hate the church. And let me tell you, I get it because the church can be very, very unlovely and sometimes cruel. I get it. But if we start not with the current experience of what is church like in America in 2018, but we start with the teachings of Jesus, we see that something has gone very, very wrong. You know, while there is like content that could be explored, could be digested, could be studied on one's own, online, on, you know, coming in anonymous into church, the content, if it's divorced from its intended context of community, is missing a vital element. The content is supposed to be something enjoyed and studied and wrestled with among a group of people who are growing in sacrificial love for each other, who have deep knowledge of each other, in service of each other, in affection of each other, people who are practicing true spiritual friendship with each other. It's not just the content. It's not just the stuff the preacher says. It's in the context that it's delivered. It's supposed to be delivered among a group of people who are journeying, going a direction together. I thought for the first time this week about the friendship among the disciples. Have you ever thought about the friendship among the disciples? They spent at least three or four years together with Jesus. They did road trips together. They were learning together. They were like frat brothers in the first century. Uh, They had a lot of these shared experiences. They'd been uh, with Jesus. And do you ever think about how they felt about each other 
Think back to like formative years for you. Maybe it was high school. Maybe it's, maybe it's work, coworkers. Maybe it's college. Think about that group of friends that you really shared life with and you just, you love those people. You'd, maybe you'd say you'd give anything to go back to that season. John was, was the only of the disciples other than Judas not to die as a martyr. And you can imagine John being an old man and he's sitting in his armchair in his 70s or his 80s. I don't know how long he lived. And and maybe his, his wife comes up to him or a grandkid comes up to him. John, what are you, Grandpa John, what are you thinking about? He said, you know what? I'm thinking about Peter. I miss him. Every day I think about it. I think about Bartholomew. We had so many good conversations. And, you know, as weird as it is, I even think about Judas. Like, we walked through it together. And I, I can't believe to this day why he did what he did. But as weird as it is, I still love him. You can imagine the, the friendship among those people that had followed Jesus. Could any of the disciples or could any of the members of the early church have conceived of, of a church in 2018 as being limited to a worship service that lasts one hour where people come in not knowing anyone and leave not knowing anyone? Could they have conceived of anything like that? Um, we too often settle for shallow versions of the kind of spiritual friendship that were the hallmark of the early church. We miss out. We let ourselves miss out. As the Father loves the Son, so the Son loves the disciples, so the disciples are supposed to know one another and have deep, abiding relationships with each other. As we wrap this conversation about learning to be well, our dichotomy, every week's been organized around a dichotomy. Our dichotomy today is friends versus followers. Friends versus followers. I'm speaking, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but friendship is cheap in 2018. Friendship is really cheap. To friend is a verb. Uh, to friend is it's a status that one has or doesn't have with somebody else on the internet. And obviously there's so much more. I'm painting with a broad brush, but go with me. Friendship is a, it's a status you have. You can friend or unfriend someone, which means there's a little like green or blue notification when you go to their profile page, or there's not. You, it, it's, it's, it's just a matter of something that happens online. If you friend someone, it means you can opt in or out to receive their personal digital content. You could do this on any number of platforms. When we post a status or a picture or a video or an update, we're given a choice to comment or to like or to totally ignore it. But this is not being a friend. This is being a follower, a consumer of one another's personal uh, social entertainment. That's not friendship. And obviously, we know that it's more than that, but this kind, of friend, this kind of engagement with a broader social network has an effect on the way that we interact with one another. Think about this. We have an unprecedented luxury in our generation. We have an unprecedented luxury of consuming one another's personal data without having to do the work of gathering it ourselves through interpersonal conversation. So Patrick, I can look at the stuff that Patrick posts online, and I can know stuff about Patrick without ever having had an interpersonal conversation with Patrick. And I can feel like I know a person, but I, we don't actually know each other's names. We've never been on each other's like parents' back porch. We don't know each other's middle names. We, we get to mine the data without actually having to do the work ourselves interpersonally. Sociologists talk about the effect that like, this kind of uh, technology has on the way that we learn. 
So in generations past, if you wanted to learn a word, you wanted to learn a concept, you wanted to learn about a country, maybe you'd go to the library, you'd think about the topics that apply to that theme, you go to the card catalog, you talk to the librarian, you find the book, you look it up, you read, it's slower, it takes some time and some commitment. The lack of that kind of scouring for information is having an effect on the way that we learn. And similarly, it has an effect on the way that we relate to one another when we can mine the data at a distance without having to actually have a conversation and look each other in the eye. Real friendship requires talking and asking questions and FaceTime and reading nonverbals and gaining trust over an extended period of time. Real friendship requires patience and skills and navigating conflict, and sometimes it's really, really messy. It's an art, and it's a practice. What, what do the Scriptures teach about the nature of friendship? What is a friend? In John 15, Jesus gives us some clues about the nature of friendship. There's love. Uh, there's, there's sacrifice. There's, there's sac I'm laying down my life for you. There's a certain amount of self-disclosure. Jesus said, I'm not calling you servants, I'm calling you friends, because everything I learned from my dad, I'm telling you. There's self-disclosure, there's commitment, there's, there's loyalty. You go to the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 17 says, a friend loves at all times. A friend is one who loves at all times. Proverbs 27.6 says, the wounds of a friend are to be trusted, uh, but the kisses of an enemy multiply. Sometimes your closest friends are the ones who tell you the hardest truth that makes you the most angry. Sometimes your closest friends are the ones you want to throw off a cliff from time to time. Uh, but, it's, but it's their willingness to be truth tellers that, uh, that gains them trust over time. Uh, David and Jonathan, in the book of 1 Samuel, you have this great relationship between the son of Israel's first king, Saul, and the king-to-be, David. And in 1 Samuel 18, this is verses 1 and 3, beautiful language about friendship. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. What is a friend? One who he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. It introduces this concept of a covenant of friendship. Covenants are a really big deal in the Bible. God made a covenant with Abraham that through his family he'd bless all the nations made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David that there's going to be a king from your family who will sit on the throne forever, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. There's a new covenant established in the blood of Jesus so that there's not a priest who has to go into the, uh, into the temple every year to offer a sacrifice on our behalf, but one has been made once for all. These are covenants, covenant language. In the ancient Near East, a covenant was a way of getting two groups uh, to behave well together. One way that a scholar described covenant is in terms of fictive kinship. Fictive is, you know, you say fake, kinship's family. It's fake family. Covenant is I'm going to decide to behave toward someone else who is not my family as if they were my family. This is covenant. It's fictive kinship. And then you think about friendship through the lens of, of covenant, through the lens of a covenant of friendship like Jonathan had set up with David. And you say friendship is an elective voluntary relationship in which one person behaves as family toward another person who is not their family. It's a covenant of friendship. Wesley Hill is a New Testament scholar. He wrote a, a great book on the Trinity. He's a speaker. He's a, an, an author. He wrote a couple other books, one called Spiritual Friendship. Another one is called Washed and Waiting. 
And Wesley really latched on to this concept of a covenant of friendship. Because for as long as he can remember, Wesley loved Jesus. And Wesley was also attracted to members of the same gender. Uh, And as as Wesley grew up and he grappled with his faith and with his sexuality, uh, he became convinced uh, that for him to act on his attractions would be outside of Christian teaching. And so Wesley made a a costly decision that he was going to make a a vow of celibacy, that he felt to be loyal to Jesus. For him, he needs to make a a vow of celibacy. And so as he began to to live into this, was faced with the reality of, of loneliness and wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, making a case that if the church is is to call people to costly obedience in all its forms, that it must be nourished on deep and abiding spiritual relationships. Wesley had resonated with the words of a friend who said, I can live without sex, but I can't live without intimacy. We say if the church is to support any of us, You know, Ben talked about his own journey uh, to being well. All of us have our own journey of learning to be well. If the church is to nourish that kind of life, it has to be undergirded by deep and abiding relationships. The church should be a garden of friendships. And in Christian community, we should not only honor a particular category of relationships. Marriage is the one that gets the biggest platform. We should also elevate and honor the status of friendship. Friendship matters. Jesus died single. And Jesus had some of the deepest, deepest friendships in human history. In Christian community, we must not only honor marriage, but elevate and honor friendships. As we say our vision is to be a community shaped by the gospel, we're saying at its core, we want to be an interwoven network of friendships that are shaped by the gospel, spurring one another on to follow in the way of Jesus and to join God in the renewal of all things. Now, not all friendships are the same. If all of us were best friends with all of us in this room, it would be exhausting. And so it's not fair to to try to, you know, bemoan one relationship because it's not like another, because we we need a network of different kinds of relationships. Uh, Joseph R. Myers, in his book, um, uh, The Search to Belong, uh, quoted this scholar who had studied what does it take to have a robust network, a robust community. He found that we need relationships at four levels. The biggest level he called the public space. This is a large number of people would identify with. This would be like, I'm an American. I'm a human. I am an Oklahoman. I'm a Tolson. Uh, for you, it could be, I, I like the Sooners. I like the Thunder. You're identifying with a large group of people at the public space. It could also be, I'm a part of Cornerstone. This is my church. There are, you know, X number of us, but we need that level of belonging at at a big space. With each step down, we need fewer relationships. So the next step down is the social space. This is the, this is like the talking with your neighbor in the front yard space. This is the small talk space. So my neighbor Fred is awesome. He's really fun. We talk almost every day. He has never once asked what I do. We talk about the grass. We talk about what the, the guy who used to live in my house did with the trees in the backyard and how I got the zoysia to grow so well. I love Fred. Uh, that's a small talk social relationship. 
In some ways, it's an acquaintanceship. You come to church, I'm sure you have some social relationships. People that maybe you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Patty, we, went, we were together on the day of service. Or um, we did that one thing. When we did a potluck ages ago, we ended up sitting at the table. I can't even remember their last name, but yeah, that's Rusty. And, you know, you're sharing all of the names. It's a social space where um, maybe you know each other's names, but you certainly recognize each other's faces. The next level down, you get into personal relationships. This is, this is uh, more intimate than an acquaintance. This is a friend. People know a lot about you. Uh, they could, like, cite facts. Well, yeah, they, went, they grew up in so-and-so. They went to this school. They're friends with so-and-so. They do this. And these are, you know, these are buddies. These are friends. You know, these are people you may have spent a fair amount of time with. You haven't, like, let them in to, like, the, into the inner chambers of your heart. But you know a ton about each other. You spend a lot of time together. We need those relationships. And then at the very smallest level, we have the intimate space, which only a couple people can get in there. This is the place where you can be emotionally naked and known and safe. These are the people who know, like, how you're wired, how you tick. And we need a couple of relationships at that level. Uh, we are better at public and social relationships. We're really good at small talk relationships. We're less good. We're not as strong in developing deep, personal, and intimate relationships where we are deeply known and know others. Gordon McDonald is an author, a speaker. I heard him at uh, the Q conference a couple of years ago, and he's in his mid-70s, and he told a story about uh, when he went to the Swiss Alps with three of his friends. And, uh, and his words, he says, what are a bunch of old guys doing hiking the Swiss Alps? I don't know, but we did it. And uh, they, they're up in the Alps, and then they come to a place where there's a fork in the road. To the left, they could go, and it'd be, you know, an hour, pretty easy hike, and they could be back to their lodgings. If they went to the right, it was probably going to be three hours, much more difficult. Um, and for whatever reason, they opted to go to the right. Well, they get an hour in, and Gordon's buddy Al is exhausted. He's just worn out. And Gordon says, well, tell you what, you other two guys, why don't you go ahead, um, you know, even though it doesn't lead us to our lodgings, get a hotel for the night, because it's starting to get late, and uh, Al and I will catch up to you. And so Gordon is talking about, he's sitting here with his friend Al, and he says, and they, they try to hike for a bit, and Al's just worn out. And Gordon goes, you know what, Al, let's do this. I want us to, to hike together 100 steps, and then we'll stop and rest. And we're going to hike together another 100 steps, and then we'll stop and we'll rest. And Al is pretty tired, and, and he, he, uh, Gordon helps him to his feet, and he interlocks his arm with them, you know, like a father's going to walk the bride down the aisle, these two older men. And as they take their first hundred step, Gordon says, you know what, Al, you're a good man. You're a strong man. You've done this kind of thing before, hundred steps and rest. They get up again. He says, you know what, Gordon, tell me the story of when you met your wife again. Tell me the story of when you met Jesus, a hundred steps and rest. They get up and they say, Gordon, Al, tell me the story of how you won the 400 meters at the Boston Gardens. Uh, let me sing you a song, one of our favorite songs, Great is Thy Faithfulness, 100 Steps and Rest, 100 Steps and Rest, 100 Steps and Rest. And by the time the day was over and night fell, Gordon and Al reached their destination. They're at this hotel. And Gordon said, there were a few times in my life that I've ever loved another man as much as I loved my friend Al that day. He said, out of me was coming an energy, a strength that he could draw from, and that's community. 
a strength that you can draw from. Ten years ago, I mean, I could give examples of any number of friendships in this room of, of people who've, whose strength I've drawn from. One example, ten years ago, I, I met a guy who's in our church, and I thought, I like this dude. We should get coffee. And so we decided to start meeting once a week to get coffee and to talk, and to, we read the Bible together. And early on, we read this article by Donald Miller that said, uh, you should plan to peak in your 60s. Because if you plan to peak in your 60s, you won't begrudge a couple of extra years of training in your 20s and your 30s. And we committed to each other. We want to be well into our 60s and 70s. We want to be old together. It's kind of like Gordon and Al who, are, who can see a finish line. We want to help each other get there. And so we started meeting. We started talking with this vision in mind of finishing well, of being friends. So there's, there's calls, there's texts, there's time together, but there's an unspoken covenant of friendship that says, well, I want to be the one who helps you get to the finish line and to do it well. That's friendship. A hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. How do you develop this kind of friendship? What does it take? Uh, I want to give just five quick talking points, um, and then uh, I'll close with C.S. Lewis because that's what pastors should do. How do you develop these kind of friendships? How do you practice this kind of friendship? First, you take it slow. Relationships have a natural speed at which they progress. You crawl and you walk and you run. If people are trying to run in their relationship with you right out of the gate, it's a little creepy. It's a little bit creepy. You crawl and you walk and you run. You build trust over time. There are no like quick there are a few quick friendships. Every now and then you'll meet a person where you can just hop in, but even then it takes time. You're catching up on, oh yeah, and what's your little brother's name? It takes time, so uh, take it slow. Two, uh, cultivate contentment for the friendships you have. Don't mourn the friendships you lack. So Instagram can be so depressing for developing your own friendships because you see, oh, that group of friends is so close, that is nothing like my group of friends, and that kills your current friends. Cultivate deep contentment for the friendships you have and don't grieve the friendships you don't. Man, if I were only friends with Russ, oh my gosh. I am friends with Russ. I didn't want to, I'm not unfriending you publicly. <laughs> so don't mourn the friendships you don't have. Cultivate contentment. Three, to have a friend be a friend. Learn and observe what great friends do. Think in your situation, what would a great friend do right now? And then do those things. Uh, four, spend tons of time together. I would advocate for moving near each other. Uh, travel together, pray together, play together, celebrate together, mourn together. And then five, I would say spend uh, the majority of your time or most of your time with uh, friends who call you to your best. So I have a healthy and an unhealthy range as a human being. At my healthiest... I'm like driven and proactive and I'm achiever and I'm like keep relationships in mind. At my worst, I am detached and I want to eat Chinese food and binge Netflix and talk to nobody. And I could do that today easily. So our friendships uh, represent our healthy and our unhealthy ranges. You could like chart yourself at health and unhealth and put which friends fit best in which categories. Spend the most of your time with the friends who call you to your best. Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Lewis said this in his book, The Four Loves. He said, in friendship, we think we have, we think we have chosen our peers. 
In reality, a few years difference in the date of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not at a first conversation, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you've not chosen one another, but I've chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating in good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to, uh, to each of us the beauties of others. I long for Cornerstone to be a seedbed and a school of friendship where we're deeply learning in the context of friendship to love and serve one another, where we're identifying and naming the beauties and the gifts and grace in one another, and we're calling each other to live into them. We're at each other's side with love and without judgment when we fail, but we're also there to, to spur each other on to good deeds, where together we were known, we show off the love of God that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for us in the way that we self-sacrificing love, show our love for one another. That is what it means to be an interwoven network of friendships, to be a community shaped by the gospel. Surely that kind of community could join God in the renewal of all things. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, and that's how I want you to love each other. I want you to be known by it. I want you to reek of love for each other. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I give thanks for the gift of other humans, which comes with tremendous complexity and also just uh, delight of getting to discover that other people are the same kind of weird as us. Thank you that you give us the gift of, of just a friendship, of, of being known, of being upheld by others. And thank you for the men and the women in this room who uphold me uh, as a friend. May we do that for each other. But Jesus, we also see hiding in plain sight this, this remarkable statement by Jesus that you want us to have a, a relationship with you that's characterized by friendship. In the past, the, the people trembled at the foot of Sinai as God spoke to one man, but you, through Jesus, have given us unfiltered, unfettered access. We're to approach the throne of grace with confidence because we're friends with God. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those in this room who are not yet your friends, who are not yet in your family. I pray, Jesus, that you give them the courage today to say yes and to be part of that. And so, uh, if that's you, and I would just pray for all of us, uh, Lord Jesus, for the people in this room who um, need to cultivate contentment and gratitude for their friendships, give them the grace to do it. If that's you, say, God, man, help me to love my friends that you've given me. For the people, God, who are not yet part of your family, I pray that you give them the chance to say yes, the courage to say yes. Lord Jesus, I want to be your friend. I want to be your family. I want to have access to you and you to me. Come into my life. I pray that you do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a faithful friend and you're a stubborn friend who doesn't give up on us even when we turn our back on you. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. This shows us what kind of friend you are.